Welcome to the CJC Weekly Bible Study, where CJC stands for Complete Jesus Christ. If your perspective of Jesus is based only on teachings from the New Testament, then your understanding is incomplete. Regarding what we often call the Old Testament, Jesus himself said, These are the very scriptures that testify about me. So won't you join us today in our study where we esteem the newer and the older testaments alike. I'm your host, Jeff Smith. And currently, we're working our way verse by verse through the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. Last week, we looked at the first half of the first verse. (laughs) As far as we got with half a verse. All right, first half of the first verse. And that was, if you remember last week's study, basically last week's study was we, we declared that it was, this was the final exam for Abraham. All right, and we imagined ourselves as students, and what would you want to learn from all the pop quizzes and the tests that you would have, you know, had in the class, and then you get to the final exam. What did you hopefully learn in getting to that point, so that it could help you on the final? This is basically Abraham's final exam here, chapter twenty-two. I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say this might be even the pivotal chapter in in the entire book of Genesis. Okay. So last week, in the first half of that first verse, we looked at, now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham. And that's as, pretty much as far as we got. Regarding this test, then, that's coming up, you may not be familiar with what the test is. Some of us might be, some of us might not be. So what I want to do now is I want to take a moment and just read through these 19 verses that talk about the test that he's going to experience. He and his son Isaac, his chosen son, his favorite son, the son of promise, And here we go. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son. And he split the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. The lad and I will go yonder and worship and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father? And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Look, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And the two of them went together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the land or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for the burnt offering instead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. 
Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. In blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they rose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So now we have an overall glimpse of what the test looks like. All right, if you haven't read this before, it could be shocking to be reading this for the first time. There's so much going on. There's so much information in here, some of which is beautiful, some of which is abhorrent, some of which is a, a challenge to us. So we're going to be looking at some of it today. How far are we going to get? Probably just through verse 2. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So last week we got through half a verse, so today we'll get through another half a verse and then maybe a full verse of verse 2. Last week I wanted you to imagine yourself as maybe a college student, like I said, Today, I want you to have a different perspective or a different point of view. Today, I want you to have the point of view of maybe a forensic investigator, all right? Somebody who specializes in uh, identifying fingerprints, finding and identifying fingerprints. Because I think you're going to find, as we go through this story, we're going to see the fingerprints of God all over this thing, all right? The fingerprints of God are definitely here. In Jewish tradition, this story is known as the Akedah. And Akedah is Hebrew for binding, Anybody, uh, any idea, any guesses on where the binding occurs here in this story? Do you remember where it occurs? On the altar. There you go, yeah. He bound his son Isaac, right? Right before placing him on the altar, right before uh, the sacrifice to be made. So that's where the word comes from that gives rise to the whole story, the Akedah, all right? There's two things to see about this story. Number one, we see the faith of Abraham, all right? The faith of Abraham, and it becomes a model of faith for the children of Israel, and then it becomes a model of faith for us. All right? Are we willing to be all in for God? If God calls us to do the incredibly impossible, are we willing to say, I don't know how, but okay, I'm in. All right? That's the kind of faith that Abraham showed. That's the kind of faith God expected of Israel, and that's the kind of faith that God would want for us to be able to say, yes, I'm all in. I'm all in for God. And then the other thing it shows us is that there's a substitution this idea that a substitution could be made. All right? We get to the climax of the story, and God provides a substitute. In the climax of human history, God provided a substitute. What was that? Jesus. Jesus, exactly right. He provided a substitute for us, just as he provided a substitute for Isaac in this story. So starting then in Genesis chapter 22, the second half of the verse, it says to him, or I guess we should read the first half of the verse first. Now it came to pass after these things that God tested Abraham, that's what we looked at last week, and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. When God says to Abraham, Abraham, this is actually the seventh time that God appears to Abraham. All right? From Genesis chapter 12 up through this point right now, we're talking that this is the seventh time that God has appeared to Abraham. It's interesting, too, if you notice here, he only calls his name once. All right? That's not uncommon, but it's kind of interesting when you compare that there are quite a few times in the Bible where God has to call somebody's name more than once. All right? You've got it with Moses. 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 All right? You've got Samuel. Samuel. Or there's Jacob. Jacob. Or Saul. Saul. God calls some people, has to call out their name twice. Here God is able to call out his name once, and Abraham responds. It's as if Abraham has matured to the point in his spiritual life where he's able to recognize God's voice in his life. All right? 
maybe as a quiet moment or something, but some of you probably picked up later on, right there at the climax, when God calls Abraham, he has to call his name twice, right before he's about to stab his son, right before he's about to kill his son. And he calls out his name twice there. All right? Sounds like he really wanted to get his attention, get it in a hurry. But here, God calls his name once, and Abraham recognizes God's call, and Abraham responds, here I am. That phrase, here I am, that's actually an English translation of a Hebrew phrase, obviously with our Old Testament being written in Hebrew. And there isn't an exact translation for it. It's hinene in, in Hebrew, all right? And in English, it, you gotta, you got to kind of have to make a choice as to which way you're going to go with your translation. So most of your translations will say, here I am. But it's really the way that a servant would respond to a master. When a master would call the servant, and the servant's appropriate response would be, hinene, okay? So it's basically you're saying, I surrender to what you would have me to do. I'm pledging myself. What do you need of me? Say what you will, and I'll go do it. It's that kind of language, all right? So it's a submissive language. It's a language recognizing that the person calling you has authority over your life, and you're responding in that way. There was a a gal two weeks ago, not Sunday, just a few days ago, but the Sunday before that, and we're in church. It's during worship service, and I recognize her because she's involved in my youth group where my daughter, my oldest daughter, is a participant. And I, I see her worshiping in front of me, and she's got her arms raised up, and she's praising God, and I see a tattoo right here on her arm. And it's, I recognize it's in Hebrew, and I see the Hebrew characters on it. And I'm looking at that, and I'm going, okay, this is kind of strange. You know, people get tattoos, I get it, you know, but you don't often see a tattoo that's Hebrew. And I don't think she speaks Hebrew, so I'm thinking to myself, what is it? So I tried to memorize what they were, and it took me a week, and I, I didn't figure out what they were, because I don't know the Hebrew. And so finally, this last Sunday, I went back to church, and she ended up right across the aisle from me. And I went up to her and I, I said, it's been a week and I've been trying to figure out what your tattoo means. You know, she's a sweetheart. She, she and my daughter know each other and whatnot. And she goes, oh, it's Hinene. It means here I am. Hinene. Here I am. It's the same phrase we have here on the lips of Abraham. When God calls to him, Abraham, and he says, Hinene, here I am. What would you have me to do? I'm your servant. Send me wherever you will. Happy to do whatever you want. Hinene. In verse 2 now, and he said... Take now your son. I'm thinking, if I was in Abraham's position, I would have rather heard, take now one of your sheep, you know? Or take now a goat or a ram or a bull. Or take now of your flocks and your herds, you know, multiple animals. I would have rather heard that. But it wasn't that. It was take now your son. It wasn't take your servant or your servant's son. It's take now your son. Take now your son. This is going to be a hard burden for him to bear. Take now your son. And then what's the next phrase after that? Somebody might read in the next phrase. Your only son. Your only son. Wait a minute. Your only son. Did Abraham only have one son? No. No. We're talking about Isaac here, of course, as the story goes on. But Isaac is not the only son, right? Who else has been named as a son from Abraham? Ishmael. Ishmael. But Ishmael's out of the picture now. Ishmael's been sent away. Take now your son, your only son. That's weird that he said your only son because we know he has more than one son. So is it the only son that was ever born to him? No. In fact, not only does Abraham end up having Ishmael and then the next born was Isaac, we find out uh, by the time we get to chapter 25, he's got six more sons by a woman named Keturah. So, 
it doesn't narrow down much to say your only son unless only means something other than the only one that's ever been born. What makes this son different? He's the son of promise. Using the language of Paul, the son of promise versus the son of the flesh. Ishmael is described in the writings of Paul as the son of the flesh, and Isaac is described as the son of promise. So here we have, take now your son, your only son. He's not the only one born of Abraham, but he is the only one through whom the promises are going to come. He's the only one through whom God said, in Isaac shall your seed be called. In Isaac, it's in Isaac that the promises are made by God. So in that sense, Isaac is the only son. By the way, that only son there, in the New Testament parlance, if you were to go over to Hebrews chapter 11, you would find in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 16, Isaac is described as the only begotten son of Abraham. The only begotten son. Does that phrase sound familiar? Does that conjure up some other association? What other familial association between a father and a son does that conjure up? Jesus. Jesus being described as the only begotten of the Father, the only begotten Son. I think maybe we have a thumbprint here. <laughs> I think there might be God's thumbprint starting to show up on some of the stuff that we end up seeing here. The only begotten Son. And then the next phrase, what's the next phrase there? The third phrase. Whom you love. Whom you love. Whom you love. David Stern says, if Abraham did not love Isaac, then the commandment to sacrifice him would not have constituted much of a test. Okay, I get that. But I want to pause for a moment here to consider, is love something that, our, that we in our society, we're familiar with that term? Yeah, we're familiar with that term. We're familiar with the, an appropriate tie. We're familiar with the, the bastardization of love, if you will, in our society, where lust now equals love. Love is on our vocabulary. We're coming up on Valentine's Day, and oh my goodness, you know, there's love in the air. So love is not something we're unfamiliar with. If you were to do a word search through your Bible or if you would do a word study on this word, on love, all right, it would lead you to several different words in the Greek and then you would find, you know, Hebrew equivalent for love. And then your study would eventually lead you to the first place where love is mentioned. Right here. This verse. We've talked about before, first mentions, right? Where something is mentioned for the first time and you go and you find it in your Bible and you find where something is mentioned the first time, that passage lends a power to the meaning of what the word is. And it's no exception here. When we read the very first occurrence of the word love, it's of the Father willing to give his only begotten Son. And that's the definition of love right there. Just as God was willing to give his only begotten Son on our behalf. All right, Very first occurrence of love is right there. You notice how... It was a three-phrase description there. It was, take now your son, that was the first part, your only son, that was the second part, whom you love, right? Gets more and more focused each time, more and more narrow. Turn to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. There was another pivotal moment when God spoke to Abraham. In fact, it was the very first time that God appeared to Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, you see a similar threefold, increasingly narrowing, increasingly more specific description. Now the Lord had said to Abram, get out of your country, that's the first one, from your kindred, that's the second one, and from your father's house. We're seeing a little bit of a pattern here. It's kind of reminiscent of Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And we're going to see it being reminiscent of that passage uh, in some several other places as well. One of the other places is that next phrase. That next phrase, it says, and go to. The Hebrew combination of words that lends to that translation to those words, and go to. The only other place it shows in the Bible is Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. 
That was the first time God appeared to Abraham. Here's Abraham's biggest test. Abraham's come a long way, but God's consistent in the way that he addresses and deals with him. So it says here, And he said, Take now your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go where? To the land of Moriah. Go to the land of Moriah. And then if you read further on, it says that it's specifically regarding some mountains, right? And offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So the land of Moriah, and apparently there's a particular mountain that he's to go to. This is the first time we've run across the telling of Moriah, the the first mention of Moriah. So that's kind of strange. Is there anywhere else in our Bible that Moriah is mentioned? Yes, there actually is. It's actually in 2 Chronicles. But before we go there, I want to tell you another story that's going to seem completely disconnected. All right? I want you now to fast forward in your thinking to the time of David. To the time of David. And David is pretty well established in his reign. He's king over Judah and Israel, all right? They'll eventually split after his death and after the death of his son. But for now, they're still, they're still combined in the tribes of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. David's in charge. He's the king. And he calls Joab and he says to Joab, I want you to go out and take a census. Count the number of fighting men that I have under me. And Joab says, this is not a good idea. <laughs> I don't feel real comfortable about this. And David says, just do it. Job's like, ah. And Joab goes out, and he's, a, he's faithful. He obeys, and he goes to do it. That story's over in 2 Samuel. Turn to 2 Samuel. If you turn to your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, and then you'll get to 1 Samuel, and then 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 24 is where this story takes place, and we are going to jump down to verse 10. 2 Samuel 24, 10. Somebody might read in chapter 24, verse 10. David was conscience-stricken after he had counted the fighting men. And he said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. Now, O Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I have done a very foolish thing. Excellent. Thank you, Steve. What is it that David probably feels conviction over? I mean, he just took a census. He just counted people, right? He just counted all of his fighting men. He ended up finding out there was half a million in Judah, 800,000 in Israel. So over a million people that could fight for him and keep him safe. What's wrong with that? God didn't tell him to do that. And he's putting probably his trust in the number of men he's got more than in God. So he feels condemned the next day. Verse 10, he feels condemned. Then verse 11, God appears to Gad. Gad is a prophet or a seer, some of your versions will say. God says to Gad, I want you to take this word to David. Here's the word you're to take to David. David, you've got to choose. Of three punishments, you choose one. One of these punishments is going to be, would you rather, and you can see this in verse 11 and 12 and 13, would you rather have seven years of famine that you and your land are subject to? Or would you rather have three months of having your enemies chase you? He's been down that road before. He doesn't like that idea. Or would you rather have three days of plague spread throughout your land? That's the punishment. He's got to choose one of those. And David's reply is, you know what? I'd rather not fall into the hands of men because God, I know my God to be a merciful God. So let me fall into the hands of God and not into the hands of men. I choose the plagues. Three days of plagues, right? So he chooses the three days of plagues. And if you go down to verse 15, what happens? The Lord sent a plague upon Israel from the morning till the appointed time from Dan to Beersheba. 
Remember that phrase from Dan to Beersheba? Dan, we got the map there in the back. Dan is at the northernmost end of Israel. Beersheba at the southernmost end. David's in Jerusalem there in the middle. All right. So from Dan to Beersheba, from the extent of the land, how many people do they end up losing? 70,000. 70, you would think in three days it wouldn't be that big. And maybe, <laughs> maybe David was hoping that it wouldn't be that big either. But here's something weird that happens in verse 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, just like Abraham stretched out his hand to destroy his son Isaac, right? Just as the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, what happens? The Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who was destroying the people, it is enough. Now restrain your hand. Just like God intervened in the situation with Abraham and Isaac. Just as Abraham was raising up the blade to strike down his son, God says, stop, halt, knock it off. I get it. We're done. It's over. Test completed. All right. So here we have the angels told to stop. It is enough. Now restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Verse 17, then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel. That, uh, that trips me up. David saw the angel. Oh, how big was that angel? How big was that sword? Ooh, I'm not sure I want to know. Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Surely I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Let your hand, I pray, be against me and against my father's house. And then Gad ends up giving him instructions. And the instructions are, Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. By the way, another name for him is Onan. So David, according to the word of, of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. And then set in the last several verses, close it out there. You basically end up finding what happens. He sets up an altar and the plague is stopped. Now with that story in mind, you're probably going, why did we go down this road with this story? <laughs> All right. So, sure, there's some similarities, right? You see the similarity with God intervening, telling the angels to stop. You see the angels ready with his blade just to destroy. And just as we saw that with Abraham and his son Isaac, but there's more to it. Go to Second Chronicles. We're in Second Samuel, the end of Second Samuel. Then it's First Kings, Second Kings. Then First Chronicles, Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles, chapter three, verse one. This is the only other place that Moriah is mentioned. So 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Somebody mind reading that? So Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to Solomon's father, King David. The temple was built on the threshing floor of Arana, the Jebusite that David had selected. Excellent. Thank you, Mike. So do you see the tie-in? Here's the tie-in. The place where God chose for Abraham to take his son was to the land of Moriah on a particular mountain. Okay? We end up finding out the only other place named Moriah is this passage here. And when we read in this passage here, that place that Abraham took his son in obedience to the Lord's <coughs> commands is the same place that David went and put up an altar in the hopes that God would permanently restrain the angel from wiping out the city. The same place. So the same place that Abraham took his son Isaac to sacrifice him ends up becoming the same place that David builds this altar to stop the annihilation of everybody in Jerusalem by the angel. And that verse has another same place thing that's going on. What's the other same place? Solomon's temple. It becomes the place where Solomon's temple is built. That temple was destroyed, but then they did a rebuild. 
All right, later on. It was destroyed when they went into 70 years captivity. They come back after the captivity. There's even a few people that were alive when they went to captivity and came back. They remember seeing the temple. So when the rebuilt temple is made, there's all kinds of crying. Some people are crying for joy because, hey, we got a temple again. And some people are crying because they remember the Solomon temple. And this one doesn't look as nice as that one. All right. And to this day... The Temple Mount is this place. In fact, 700 years after the time of Jesus, on the Temple Mount is a temple called, well, it's not a temple, it's called the Dome of the Rock, right? You guys ever heard of the Dome of the Rock? Does that look familiar? Dome of the Rock right there, right? It's on the same place. So why do they call it the Dome of the Rock? Because inside there's a rock. (laughs) You wouldn't think so. You would think there would be like pews or chairs or something. There's a rock in there. You go inside, it's a big rock. You know what the rock is? It's traditionally thought that's the place where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him. But not according to their tradition. According to their tradition, it was Ishmael. You'd have to take out the name Isaac from Genesis chapter 22 (laughs) to get there. But their belief is that was the right place. They just have the wrong kid. They think it was Ishmael. Dome of the rock. Kind of weird. So the tradition is that rock is the place where Abraham took Isaac to sacrifice him in Jerusalem, the land of Moriah, on a particular mountain that I will show you. Kind of cool. I'm going back to Genesis then. Genesis chapter 22. Genesis 22. Genesis 22, we looked at verse 2, and he said, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. My Bible says Isaac. Anybody else have Isaac? Does it say Isaac there? Yeah, okay. So apparently it's not Ishmael. Okay, just making sure. Wanted to make sure. All right. (laughs) And take now Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. A burnt offering? What's a burnt offering? In the book of Leviticus, all right, this is Genesis. In the book of Leviticus, which is later, we're talking a good 400 plus years later, you're going to get to Leviticus. And in Leviticus, it explains different types of offerings that you would make to God. You would make a peace offering, or you could make a sin offering, or you could make a whole or a burnt offering. Sometimes even the whole phrase, whole burnt offering. And the reason the word whole sometimes gets thrown in there, because this offering, unlike the other ones, is sometimes you would make an offering to God, and there'd be stuff left over. People could eat it, right? It'd be like a barbecue. Okay, this is not a barbecue. When you're a whole burnt offering, it's completely dedicated to God. The only thing left over was the skin. You would take your offering, and this is going to sound kind of gruesome. I apologize if you haven't eaten already. All right, You would take your offering, and you would take a special knife, a big knife, and you would kill your offering. You would kill your whatever animal you chose. You would kill it, and then you would skin it, and then you would chop up the parts, and then you would take the different parts. You'd lay them out on your wood, and then you would offer it up to God by burning it. You'd light a fire and burn the whole thing. All right, And that was what you would do. You'd be offering to God. Is there anything left? No, it's burnt up. The only thing left is the skin you took off of it. All right. So here, Abraham's being asked to offer Isaac. He's not being asked to wound him. All right. Abraham's not hoping to get out of this by just getting a, a little stab into his arm. Okay. Oh, let's go home. We're good. All right. No. When you submitted something to a burnt offering, it was it was done. It was over. It was the whole thing was going to be gone. All right. How weird is this though? Why would God ask of such a thing? I mean, I get it. There were pagan religions during that day, and even during the time of Abraham and in the surrounding nations, where child sacrifice was something that was normal for them. But the God of the Bible makes it very clear, this is not okay. 
Child sacrifice is not okay according to Leviticus 18, Leviticus 20, Deuteronomy 18, Micah 6, Jeremiah 19. Makes it clear God is not interested in your child sacrifice. So why would God ask it of Abraham? Because in the surrounding nations, maybe this is the reason, I'm speculating now. In the surrounding nations, that was how you showed your utter devotion. You were willing to sacrifice your child to their false god? That Hey, I got utter devotion to my god. How about you? Oh, you haven't sacrificed any kids to your God? Oh, I guess you don't have utter devotion. Maybe there's this conflicting idea in, in his head. How can I show utter devotion if God you know, doesn't allow that? And I wouldn't want to do it anyway because this is the son through whom the promises are to come. right? So I don't know. I don't know. Was he conflicted by what was going around in the surrounding nations? Was he polluted in some way by their ways of worship? I don't know. But God asked that of him. But here's the neat thing about the story and why I read the whole thing. Because it's clear, if you've never read it before, but we've got to see it now, it's clear by the end, God never intended for him to actually sacrifice Isaac. God never meant for him to go all the way through and stops him before it happens. So what does it do? It shows Abraham something about himself. What is it? I am devoted to God. I've been able to demonstrate my utter devotion to God. So what was going through Abraham's head? You've got this journey you're going on. You're taking your son. It's like three days that you're going to be on the road. And on your way, what are you thinking? I'm being asked to give my son. This is the one God promised. How is God going to accomplish promises if my son's dead? If my son is completely consumed on the, on the altar? How does that serve the purposes of God? I would be tempted to think, oh, that must not be God. I'm not going to listen to that voice because it's definitely not God. <laughs> this is the way I would do it. But Abraham decided he knew well enough God's voice that he knew that was God speaking to him. So was he hoping he was going to get out of it some way? Did he foresee or anticipate the ram being provided? No, I don't think so. I think when he raised that knife, he was ready to go through with it. Until God intervened and stopped him, he was ready to go for it. How do we reconcile that? Turn to Hebrews. Hebrews is near the back of your Bible. It's uh, one of the larger ones back there, before the book of Revelation, obviously. But when you get to Hebrews, go to chapter 11. It gives us one little tidbit of information here about Abraham's state of mind. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17, 18, and 19. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead. Abraham anticipated not that God was going to stop him before sacrificing his son. Abraham expected God will raise my son from the dead. Oh, do you see another thumbprint here? (laughs) Do you see another fingerprint of God in this? Abraham was willing to trust God even for a resurrection from the dead. A father to offer a son and to see a resurrection of the dead. You can't make this stuff up. <laughs> right? This isn't man's device. You can't just come up with this. This is written over a period of about 1,600 years, 40 different authors. There's the thumbprints and the fingerprints of God all over this thing. And we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg, in a sense. All right? Is that called mixing your metaphors? Am I allowed to do that? <laughs> all right. Going back to Genesis 22. So Abraham apparently is on this journey with his son, And he's ready to sacrifice his son in the anticipation that God will raise him from the dead. How long was their journey? Do you guys remember? We're not quite that far. Maybe I'm jumping ahead a couple weeks. You mentioned three days. Three days. It was a three-day journey. In Abraham's reckoning, from the time God says to do it, in Abraham's mind, it's as good as done. 
And in three days' time, it, it won't be but three days until there's a solution to the problem. In that three-day period, in Abraham's mind, his son is dead. And then we see a resurrection at the end of three days. At least that's what he was anticipating, would be a resurrection. See another thumbprint somewhere in there? All right, going to verse 3. We might actually get through another verse, or uh, at least a little bit of the information there. Verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, indicating that Abraham obeyed right away. Remember one of those things we were hoping he would have learned through all the tests that he's been taking all along? Obey right away was one of the first ones. Here he is. He's obeying right away. First thing in the morning, he's up and he's going for it. You know, it would have been nice to say, you know what, I'm going to sleep in today because it's a hard day. I got some hard news last night. We can start in the middle of the day. We can start at the end of the day. Why do I have to get up in the morning and get going? All right, he gets up early, rose early in the morning, and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men, took two of his young men with him, and Isaac, his son. We don't know who the two young men are. They are not named. Um, they end up, as we get to uh, one point, you remember in the story that they'll end up being told to stay there. From that point forward, it would just be Abraham and his son. And Abraham split the wood for the burnt offering. You would think you would do that there, or I, I don't know why he's splitting the wood now. But we end up finding out later on that Isaac's going to carry the wood. Why wouldn't you have your donkey carry the wood? Isaac's going to carry the wood. You know anybody else that significantly carried the wood of the cross? Right. Jesus, as he carried the wood of his cross. So you see a type or a picture here. Here's one thing I want to point out. We've talked about this before, but it's been a while. I want to write on the board here the word prophecy. Prophecy. A lot of times we have in, in mind, prophecy is prediction, right? Prediction fulfillment. Turn to Matthew 2. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. As you turn to Matthew chapter 2, I'm going to show you an example of prophecy being prediction and fulfillment. So go to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. Matthew 2, 1 through 6. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, where was he born? Bethlehem, thank you very much. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard these things, he was troubled, you think, and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes, these are the guys that are the experts in their Bible, right? He wants to find out from them something, right? When he had gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them, hey, where's the Christ to be born, right? Because he wants to know where this kid's supposed to be born. So they said to him, what did they say? Which place? Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, and then they quote from the Old Testament, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. There was a prediction. They're quoting from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. These experts in the Bible are saying, oh, good question. I got the answer for you. You want to know where the Savior is supposed to be born, the Messiah, the King, that we're all anticipating and looking forward to? No, no offense to you, King. But the one that we're looking for to come and save us from the likes of you. Oh, I'm sorry. Did that come out loud? The one that's supposed to be born, where is he supposed to be born? It's in Bethlehem. It's a clear prediction in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It's a clear prediction. So prophecy in this sense is prediction and fulfillment. That's what prophecy is here. That's an example of that. But prophecy is also, another type of prophecy, is pattern. And you're going, um, 
sounds kind of familiar. Did we talk about this one time a long time ago? You might be thinking, this sounds kind of familiar. In the same, in the same place, Matthew chapter 2, go down to verse 13, 14, and 15 now. Same chapter. I'm going to give you an example of prophecy as pattern. 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother. Who's the young child? Jesus, right. Take the young child and his mother, flee to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken. Ooh, I hear a prophecy coming. Do you hear it? Which was, you know, do you hear the language there? Which might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Out of Egypt I have called my son. Quoting from Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. If you read Hosea 11, verse 1, there's no clue there that it's talking about the Messiah. It's talking about the children of Israel exiting Exodus out of Egypt. You pass right through there and you don't even, there's nothing there to even slow you down. As you're reading, you're like, oh, this is clearly about the Exodus. It doesn't sound like it has anything to do with the Messiah. Yet Matthew says this fulfills what was said over there. But over there, in our minds, the way we think of prophecy, that doesn't seem to fit. How is that predicting something? It's a different form. It's prophecy, but it's not prophecy and prediction. It's prophecy and pattern. Pattern. When you see something happening, and after the fact, you're able to look back and you go, boy, what I'm seeing here now is just like what I saw over there. And you go, oh, that's a, that's a fulfillment. That's a prophecy over there, and I never even saw it. So Matthew gives us assistance in saying that was actually a prophecy. Looking back at the Israelites leaving Egypt, looking forward to Jesus and his family going down to Egypt and coming out again. All right. So that's just an example of prophecy as a pattern. In Genesis chapter 22, and we've seen this a couple times just in this study today, where the patterns get to be pretty thick, right? In this chapter, there's a lot of patterns that show up you have a father offering up his son. That's a pattern. It's prophetic in that it's looking forward to the Messiah. Did it really happen? Yes, absolutely. It really happened. Did they know at the time it was a prophecy in the pattern form? Nope, not until after Jesus. And it's at that time when the Holy Spirit anoints the likes of Matthew or the likes of Peter and Paul in Acts when they're able to say, Jesus fulfilled all these kinds of prophecies back in the Old Testament we didn't even know about because of the patterns, they're able to call them prophecies, and we're seeing the fulfillments now. So prophecy is prediction, prophecy is pattern. So what do we see in Genesis chapter 22? Well, we've only gotten through two and a half verses, right? But what have we seen so far? Our father is, is willing to sacrifice his son. Where is he willing to sacrifice his son? In the same place that you saw an angel. Just as Abraham raised the blade, the angel raises the blade. Just as God intervened with Abraham and Isaac and says, stop, so does God intervene and keep the angel. Stop. Just as an altar was built there in the time of David, we had an altar that was built here, and it's in the same place an altar is built later. Where? Solomon's temple. Is Solomon's temple, was it in a different place from the later temple? No, it's in the same place. We have all these patterns that end up showing up. Carrying the wood. Who's carrying the wood? The son. <laughs> Who's carrying the wood in this Jesus story? Jesus. He's The son is carrying the wood of the cross. All these are patterns that serve as prophecy fulfilled prophecies by the time Jesus comes along and you're able to look back and go, wow, those are fulfillments of prophecies. So what happens when Jesus is able to say, these scriptures testify about me? When he made that statement, he wasn't talking New Testament. We only had the Tanakh, the Old Testament at that time. 
and he's saying, those are prophesying about me. What was that discussion with the two on the road to Emmaus? I'm going to guess it was probably things like, hey, you know what? And just as the father took his son, just as the son carried the wood, just as the blade was raised, all these things. And probably the men on the road to Emmaus were like, wow, that's amazing. It could be that Genesis chapter 22 figured prominently in that discussion with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. All right, I'm getting, I'm getting way off notes. We've got to close it down. <laughs> all right, let's go, let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for your word, which uh, promotes enthusiasm. I, I, I admit, Lord, I'm excited. I thank you for uh, the little places of thumbprints all over the place, in this chapter especially. Thank you, God, for showing up. Thank you, God, for revealing yourself. Thank you for giving us like a little scavenger hunt. And every treasure we end up finding points to Jesus. We thank you, God, for the many prophecies that were given, some in predictive form and some in pattern form. Thank you for the types that you've given us. We look forward to the day when we get to be with you and, I don't know, maybe sit around a fireplace sipping hot cocoa and hearing you tell all the ones that we missed. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Is it sacrilegious to say hot cocoa in heaven?